Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's called Operation Allies Welcome. The Biden administration expects thousands of Afghan refugees will come to the U.S. We'll check in with a local organization helping to resettle families here in the Atlanta region. Also, why Zoo Atlanta is reshaping its volunteer program. All that's coming up. But first, this, there's a lot taking place in Georgia. Earlier today, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit heard oral arguments regarding a Georgia 2019 restrictive abortion law. It banned most abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy based on the detection of cardiac activity. However, a lower court's 2020 ruling permanently blocked the law. The state appealed. Now, it is possible the 11th Circuit could wait before any type of ruling. Why? Well, there's an upcoming Supreme Court hearing regarding a Mississippi abortion case. That law bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Chief Judge William Pryor told both sides today that might be best. You're both saying you don't have a problem with that. Don't you agree that that's really what we ought to do? I mean, it's not every day that we get that the Supreme Court actually, we can allow the Supreme Court to do some work for us. <laughs> it's nice when it happens. <laughs> Isn't this one of those situations? The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments in the Mississippi abortion case on December 1st. In other news, the head of Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the COVID-19 vaccine rollout might have gone better if more communities had better relationships with public health workers. Dr. Rochelle Olinsky spoke at a conference featuring healthcare executives across the South yesterday. If we had community health workers in so many communities that have been vaccine hesitant now, when it came time to vaccinate, it would have been a no-brainer. They would have easily been able to convince their communities to get vaccinated. Walensky says those relationships take time to build and aren't easily established during an emergency like a pandemic. States across the South have seen lower vaccination rates than the rest of the country during the vaccine rollout. And also an update to yesterday's hearing regarding conditions in Georgia's prisons. Now, Democratic state legislators heard from advocates, former inmates and family members of people incarcerated in Georgia's prisons. Conditions in state correctional facilities are the subject of several lawsuits and now a federal investigation. Charmaine Orr says her son has been in solitary confinement for more than a year and has received no treatment for his schizophrenia. The sad thing about all of this is if we were talking about animals, if this was somebody's pet, dogs, bunnies, horses, that we would have a totally different outcry. State Representative Josh McLaurin says he's under no illusion that an about face by prison leadership of Governor Brian Kemp is forthcoming. Speaking of Governor Brian Kemp, he's called state legislators to the Gold Dome for a special session. Why, you say? Well, to redraw the Georgia's, Georgia's congressional House and Senate districts. 
Lawmakers will have to be back in the Capitol building on November 3rd, according to Thursday's proclamation. The maps drawn by the GOP majority will impact Georgians' voting districts for the next decade. The process may also assure state Republicans hold control over the General Assembly. On the other side, civil rights groups say there's still a lack of transparency in the state's redistricting process. And finally, a win would be nice for the Atlanta Falcons. The team is currently 0-2 so far in the season and will be on the road this Sunday to play the New York Giants. Falcons head coach Arthur Smith Smith says, bottom line, the team needs to win. You don't want to be in this spot, but we are. It's a reality. we got 15 more to go. we we got to get prepare ourselves to go up there and go win a football game. And we need to do it. They're, they're probably saying the same thing up in New York or New Jersey today. And so we know it's going to be a challenge. Go on the road. It'll be a tough football game. They'll be sound. It's a good scheme. So we know we got a work cut out for us. We shall see. Good luck, Falcons. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The Biden administration is vowing to help those Afghan nationals who worked alongside the United States in Afghanistan for the past two decades. That includes helping to resettle thousands expected to come to the U.S. It's a top priority, says Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Our commitment is an enduring one. This is not uh, just a matter of the next several weeks. We will not rest until we have accomplished the ultimate goal of Operation Allies Welcome. We're here locally. Catholic Charities of Atlanta has a program. And joining me now with more on what they're doing is Essence Vincent. She's a senior director for Refugee Resettlement Services for Catholic Charities of Atlanta. Director Vincent, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin here because you all already have immigration and refugee services, which are totally different, correct? Yes, yes. The refugee resettlement process is a pretty laid out um, mandated process with a lot of core services and services provided. And there's a pathway to citizenship. Immigration services kind of vary in what eligibility benefits that some of those um individuals receive and it's a long sometimes it's a very long process waiting to receive what status they'll be granted by an immigration court yeah i definitely know about that and we should note um, how folks are classified migrants refugees immigrants that can determine what type or if they will receive services correct not just with you all but for a lot of different organizations so how do you all do you all use some type of classification to determine what's the best pathway for folks here Yes, so it depends on what type of documents they either have entered the country with or what type of documents they were granted in their 
uh, immigration court case. So uh, refugees is really a general term that a lot of people use, but it's actually a very specific definition. It's someone who's uh, fearing for their lives, you know, well-owned fear of persecution for race, for social uh, beliefs, for gender. Um, they escape their countries and they have to go to a second country to be connected with the UNHCR. And once they're connected with the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, then their uh, interviews are completed and their claims have to be kind of checked to see if there's any truth to it. And then if so, they would be given the refugee status. But there's a very long process to get there. Yeah, I, I have done so many stories on there. You're right about that. Let's take our listeners through how all this typically works with you all. How are refugees, mm-hmm. so the refugees are referred to Catholic Charities of Atlanta through that process you just talked about? Yes. So uh, once they are given the refugee status um, and they go through all the background checks, medical screenings, they're cleared by all of our national screening tools and organizations. Uh, They're um, allocated to an organization um, depending on if they have relatives in certain states. So our national office is USCCB, which is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And USCCB will determine, okay, if a refugee that was referred to the United States, if they have family in Atlanta, then they're destined to come to Atlanta. But each agency has their own capacity. So even if there's not family, Mm -hmm. they can still be allocated to Atlanta. And I imagine that since folks are coming from so many different places. Yes, uh, we have seen people coming from all over. I still see people coming from Eritrea. We're finally starting to see some people coming from Syria, again, uh, coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, but what we were seeing right now is nothing compared to uh, the amount of Afghans that we'll be seeing over the next several months. How are you all preparing before you even can talk about that process? What type of preparation do you all have to go through? Yes, so once we uh, receive word that a case has been allocated to our office, uh, we verify them. And at that point, we start to determine, okay, what will the housing needs look like? What Mm -hmm. benefits will they need? And so uh, once we get the travel information, we start the process of finding housing, making sure that it's in an area where they're connected to resources, connected to their community, whether it's other immigrants or their own uh, ethnic group, uh, so they don't feel alone. Uh, A lot of the times they're going to the Clarkson area, Um, but mostly just in that North DeKalb area. So it's mainly just making sure that we have everything set in place before they come. You all are mostly helping households, individuals, families, combination, all of the above. It's a combination of all of the above, uh, uh, all of the above, but we do see a lot of family with uh, children. And so we do have special programs to get children enrolled in school and have other support services for the children. But uh, we do see some individuals as well. Well, Essence, any idea how many Afghan refugees you all can expect to come through your program in terms of numbers? Yes. As I mentioned before, we all have different capacities. So um, Catholic Charities Atlanta did report to USCCB. We had the capacity to serve up to 30 um, Afghan um, nationals that are coming through this new program. But where we've already uh, assured or verified that we can take more than that. So the capacity is going to be flexible because the need is just so great. Um, and with our regular refugee process or that population, we're going to be receiving upwards of 300 uh, this next fiscal year. 300 within the next fiscal year. Yeah. Wow. How does that compare then to some of the other 
situations we've seen around the world when you all have had to, there's been an influx or there's been some type of, of civil unrest, what have you. Can you compare this to another time when you've had this many that you're all expecting this many to come to the Atlanta area that you all going to help resettle? Yeah, so what we're going to be seeing with uh, this refugee population going into this next fiscal year is going to be similar to the ending of the Obama administration, where the refugee presidential determination, the ceiling, was around 100,000 refugees to come into the country. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, we were accepting all nationalities, all religions, all races. Uh, and so we saw an influx of people coming and able to take advantage of the services offered. Um and so this is going to reflect that because, as you know, there's been a downturn in the refugee program. And so now the Biden administration is committed to rebuilding that refugee program. And so that's what we're going to start seeing. Any idea in terms of num- numbers, how many of you all have resettled doing that from the Biden administration, or excuse me, from the Obama administration, Any in terms of numbers? Well, that his last year in office, and I believe that was um, around 2016, we received about 313 clients. Mm. And those are individuals, and that comprised of families and individual cases of very various ethnicities. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Essence Vincent. She's the Senior Director of Refugee Resettlement Services for Catholic Charities here in Atlanta. And we're talking about the expected arrival of Afghan nationals. Let's go back to this process again, Essence, for our listeners. So... The folks have been identified, and how long will it take? I mean, we know that some are leaving right now. Or have some arrived? Are you anticipating the next two weeks? Take us through how this is going to work. Yeah, so uh, in some of the other agencies in Atlanta, there are three other agencies. They have seen some Afghan um, nationals uh, come through the humanitarian parole process. However, our first case is actually coming this weekend. Um, we've we've already assured upwards of 30 cases. So over the next two weeks, those cases will be coming and they comprise single cases and individual cases. So the challenge is finding housing uh, for them and making sure that it's still within the community, like I mentioned before. Um, There's going to be a quick turnaround because uh, though the military bases are equipped to house those Afghans, but it's not equipped to house them for long. So Mm -hmm. The government is also trying to make sure we can get people to their permanent homes that is more suitable for children and more suitable for families uh, as quickly as possible. So we'll see people coming uh, very quickly in October. Who are your partners in terms of helping you all with, with, I guess, the first part is just then Mm -hmm. connecting them with someone, you know, folks coming from Afghanistan to to good old Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. We love Atlanta. <laughs> it's it's going to be a little bit different, you know. It's going to be culture shock. Let's be yeah, really yeah. clear. So who are your partners yeah. in helping these individuals? And and do you have housing already set up? Or are you all still trying to find it? So we're still going to community resources to find housing um, because we have such a great community in the Clarkson area. Everybody still wants to go there, mm-hmm. but, uh, but Clarkson, Clarkson is, is only so big. Board. Clarkson is only yes. so big. We love Clarkson. We love y'all, but yes. y'all, y'all tiny. Yes. And so now we have partnered with an organization called the welcome co-op, which is actually a collaborative of the four resettlement agencies here in Atlanta. Uh, it's a way that we outsource our housing. So one organization is in charge of, 
connecting with new housing uh, resources so that we can, you know, be able to focus on building new communities across the, the city. And so with the Welcome Co-op, there is uh, the coordinator who goes out and finds these apartments for us. And so we partner with uh, organizations like uh, Open Doors Atlanta, who mm -hmm. have offered to um, assist in finding apartments, finding those property managers who are willing to uh, house a lot or many refugees during this crisis. Okay, so Essence, you've, they've come, we've got housing for them. Now there's so many other wraparound services that they need. Mm -hmm. What What's the next step then for so many? Yeah, so uh, specifically speaking for the Afghan parolee program, uh, the, the next step is employment. Uh, the services that are offered uh, will last about 90 days. The, the finances that come with our program will only last about 90 days. So as soon as they arrive, they'll come with their employment authorization document. And the next step is for them to gain employment so they can support themselves and support their families. Um, but there are of many other services that we'll be assisting with, including getting children enrolled into school uh, and then making sure they have the social and emotional support while adjusting to school and making sure the parents understand the new school system. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a program through the Department of Human Services that allows us to provide those services. Uh, we also make sure they get access to health care because, uh, as you know, this is a very traumatic situation and it's still very fresh and still very ongoing. So there will be need for mental health and medical health screenings. And so that's what we will be prepared to make sure they'll get connected with. I have an email from a listener that says, how are you all staffed in terms of translators? I don't know if they're offering to be one, but I guess I could reply to them. You all, are you looking, do you need assistance in that area? But I imagine you have folks. Yes, we do have staff members who speak the languages of the majority of our client uh, populations. We also have contract interpreters, but with the new wave of individuals coming, we welcome support, especially if they speak the languages Dari, Pashto, Farsi. That, that's, those are the languages of our Afghan uh, family members coming. So we welcome any and all help. And also, Essence, uh, another email popped up here. A listener wants to know in terms of the, the, the households, the families, do you all, do you ask if you all have caseworkers for each family or after the 90 days, they're on their own? So we have caseworkers that walk alongside these families for the first 90 days. Uh, I know at Catholic Charities, even though the program isn't lasting beyond 90 days, we're preparing to give services up to six months if we can and if needed. Uh, and yes, we have case managers to walk along aside those families as long as needed. And when does that process in terms of the refugee resettlement process in, and then it goes toward the immigration status process, as you mentioned earlier, coming to this program, those are two separate, two separate pathways. Yes. So the group of Afghans that will be coming, they'll come with a humanitarian parolee status. And so with that means that within the, the first year of them being in the country, they'll have to apply for uh, asylum. And so as soon as we can get, you know, families connected with employment, make sure their basic needs are met, we will refer them internally to our immigration legal services uh, department so that they can start their asylum application so that they can uh, obtain permanent status. In essence, I'm curious, what about in terms of health and wellness? You mentioned uh, the mental aspect in terms of, especially for some of the children, but from a, a health, I mean, a physical health, are you all also giving health screenings? And listen, we are still, the world is still in a pandemic here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So uh, we've learned from our national office that at the military bases where a lot of these families are traveling from, they're receiving basic health care while they're there, health screenings, immunizations. um, And a lot of them will come with at least one dose of uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unclear whether or not they they have the Johnson Johnson, which is only one dose, but they're at least receiving one dose before they travel and we'll connect them with resources so that they can get their second dose. So uh, right now their health is being taken care of at the military bases. And and also, Essence, I want to switch for a moment because obviously we know with the situation in Afghanistan with, with, with the Afghan nationals and those are folks who have worked alongside the U.S., but also there's another issue here and that's with the thousands of, of Haitian migrants that are trying to get to the U.S. and stay in the U.S. Are you all involved in helping them as well? Yes, it's very limited right now because there is not enough guidance and resources available. Um, but along with the humanitarian parolee uh, program, there's also a Haitian entrance program that does provide some services for those who find their way to a resettlement agency. Uh, and so, yes, we have started a fund and there is a way on our website to donate so that we can be able to provide assistance to those uh, um, Haitian entrants that do uh, reach out to us asking for help. You said there's no guidance. You mean from, from Washington? Is, is that what you mean? Or from the, the other services? Correct. Does that, is that typical? I'm, I'm imagining that is typical. You all need to have the guidance in order to help folks. Have you all reached out to them and yes. asked them? So as things unfold, uh, the government responds to, you know, what is going on, and then they pass down guidance uh, to national offices, and then those national offices pass down guidance to the affiliates. Uh, sometimes it happens quicker than other times. Uh, and so right now we're waiting and expecting to receive some word on how to better provide services to that group as well. So the Afghan refugees, we're looking to help the Haitian migrants who are coming mm-hmm. here. You talked about the situation in Syria and you mentioned Eritrea. Any other areas around the world that you all expect to see um, an influx or expect to see folks coming in that need refugee resettlement here in the Atlanta area? Yes, so we're still expecting to see some Burmese coming in, uh, also some Somalian, and like I mentioned, the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's uh, over the last several years actually been the largest population that we've seen mm-hmm. uh, coming through, and I imagine they'll continue to be a, a high population as well. Essence, I want to end our conversation, if possible, with, with in looking at a success story here. And I know that you have access to so many families and, and households that have resettled here. Does one come to mind in terms of that you can recall that you know of or heard of uh, in terms of a family or individual coming to the Atlanta area? You know, obviously this was so new. And then the success mm-hmm. of that individual or that household. What can you share? Yes, I can think of a single mother um, that... Uh, came with just her children and um, kind of it, it's hard for single mothers to kind of get ahead with the cost of child care and with you know facing the need to have to work and have to support their whole family with when maybe that wasn't the, the role back in their home country but I could think of uh, one woman right now who actually um, recently became employed uh, she has her children have been connected with our mentoring program and they're succeeding in school. She's still working at that current job. And uh, it's just been really beautiful to see her go from kind of not knowing what's going to happen and needing a lot of support to being a lot more independent today. And where was she from? Do you, 
Okay. I believe she's from Democratic Republic of Congo. Wow, that's a great story. Essence Vincent is Senior Director of Refugee Resettlement Services for Catholic Charities here in Atlanta, helping so many, so many folks from around the world, but recently also expecting so many from Afghanistan. Essence, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll have a link to your websites. I've got emails from folks that want to help everybody. <laughs> Afghans, Haitians. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We will send that on to you. So thank you so much and thank you to the Atlanta community who's willing to help the Afghans and Haitians. We really appreciate that. Essence, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, good luck to you, Jim, and your new neighbors. <laughs> Closer Look continues now. I am Rose Scott. Officials with Zoo Atlanta have a way with words. Quote, Zoo Atlanta is actively seeking new members of its dynamic and rewarding volunteer force. Individuals passionate about wildlife, conservation, conservation, and giving back to the community are encouraged to explore the zoo's adult volunteer programs. Close quote. Is that you? Now, how will all this work and just who are the right type of folks for Zoo Atlanta's adult volunteer program, which now includes an all-new event volunteer program? Let's ask Michelle Kohler, Vice President of Education at Zoo Atlanta. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for having us. We're super excited to have the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Before we get into Zoo Atlanta's volunteer program, let's get an update on how you all are faring, especially because we are still in a pandemic. How y'all doing over there? We're doing well. We're doing well. We're having a, a great year. Um, the, you know, we're enjoying the beautiful weather today for sure. Um, and a lot of families are families and individuals are coming out and being outside and enjoying being outside, obviously, um, and seeing our animals in action. Have you all modified any of the visiting hours? I know when the the coronavirus, you know, infections went up and. Are all the exhibits open? I know at, at one point some were still closed. Uh, what's the, the status of that? Thank you for asking that. Yes, we did at some point have some exhibits that were not available due to the pandemic, but actually we are fully open. So when you come to the zoo, um, we do have a few areas in which we ask that you do wear a face covering. So we do ask that when you're inside um, our indoor exhibits that you wear a face covering for your, your protection, the protection of other guests and of our animal ambassadors. Um, but other than that, there are no other restrictions currently at the zoo. So the reptile house is open, which is one of my favorites. Yes. Oh, yes. Definitely and, open. And is the Komodo dragon, do you have a new one? Because I, I believe one passed away and went on to glory. But um, you have a new Komodo dragon? I'm just fascinated with the Komodo dragon as long oh. as it's behind the glass. But do you have a new one? Absolutely important that it's behind the glass protected. <laughs> Protective covering is important with the Komodo dragon. Uh, we do have a... a, a Komodo dragon is, and uh, their name is Rinka. Um, and I've been here five years and they've been there five years. So I'm not sure, um, but I do know that we did have a Komodo dragon named Slasher many years ago. Yeah. That might be the one that you're yeah. talking about. I had no, I did not have the pleasure of knowing Slasher. We had a, we had a bond. Did you? <laughs> yeah, they're fascinating, fascinating animals for sure. And also I think for our listeners, because it was revealed, Michelle, that uh, 18 of the 20 gorillas at Atlanta Zoo had tested positive for COVID-19. How, how, how's everybody doing? Oh, well, thank you for, you know, for asking and for your interest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an educator, not a veterinarian sure. or an animal care specialist, but, um, you know, we are, 
uh, very, very happy that we were able to release some news on September 17th. Um, so you can kind of reference back that to see, but we are hopeful that all of our gorillas will continue to um, have a full recovery and um, they're doing quite well. And you can come and see them on exhibit at the zoo. Right. Um, they are, yes, yeah, so they are available to see and uh, little baby Floyd is there and he's running around that habitat. If you haven't seen him <laughs> lately, he has learned to like belly flap into the hammocks. He's amazing. Floyd. You call Floyd. him Floyd. Who? <laughs> his, his name is Floyd. He's amazing. <laughs> Floyd, the, the, the little baby gorilla, Floyd. All right. Yes. Well. <laughs> Listen, yes. Um, tell folks about your job. I mean, it sounds kind of cool to be the vice president of education at a zoo. Oh, I am very blessed. So I've been into Atlanta about five years. Um, and we have the opportunity to inspire guests and program participants and individuals every day through all the things that we get to do. So our education department um, includes programs for schools and youth and families. Um, they all, we also have the opportunity to participate in engaging our guests to come through our front door um, we provide programming, animal encounters, giraffe feeding, wild encounters. The, the list is endless. And then, of course, um, you know, what we're here to talk about today is mm -hmm. our, our volunteer program. Um, you know, we are always looking for volunteers. And right now we're, we're definitely excited to um, get more individuals involved in our volunteer force and provide service to the zoo as well as service to our community. So let's back up a little bit for the, the, the volunteers. What typically, and I guess in the past, were what were they involved in? You talk about uh, being able to mm -hmm. volunteer at, during the day or even in the evening. What typically were these uh, opportunities? So we have a variety of opportunities for adults. We actually have program, uh, volunteer programs from for families that start with children as young as eight years old all the way through 80 plus. Um, so we're really lucky to have a variety of opportunities. Our volunteers do everything from um, greet our guests in Flamingo Plaza to work our events, which we can talk a little bit more about in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, but they also provide um, educational interpretation for our guests throughout the zoo about a lot of our animal ambassadors. Um, some of them work in our animal nutrition kitchen. Some of them work in our advancement department. And we even have some volunteers um, that not during non-COVID times would be working with our animal care specialists. And so, but now, since we are still in COVID-19, some of that's going to be, are some of those it's, opportunities are not available some of that now? Is, some of that is very limited right now, of course, um, just being cautious. We do have a few, but again, that those, they're just, it's, it is limited, but we do have a variety of animals. Um, we even have some uh, volunteers that have been with us many years who are animal ambassador holders. So they're providing opportunities for our guests to see some of our ambassadors, like our snakes and turtles and whatnot up close. So. And, and you all offer training, though, for folks before they can just come on board and become an official volunteer. What is this training? What does it involve? So for our adult volunteer program, um, you after you're accepted into the program, we provide you an opportunity to learn more about the zoo, because, of course, it's important for you to understand the zoo and all the ins and outs of it. Um, we provide an opportunity for you to learn a little bit more how to uh, positively engage um, guests throughout the zoo. 
Um, and then we provide you some support as you learn that too. So nobody is just comes in one day and we just throw you out there and you just don't know um, how to, to do some of those engagement things. There's, there's training for all the different assignments that our volunteers do. And if folks are concerned, because we still are in the pandemic, what can you ensure in terms of, you know, making sure, are you all requiring that folks be vaccinated? What's the status here with that? That's a great question. Um, so we don't currently require vaccinations for all of our adult volunteers. Um, we do have um, some areas of the zoo, the, the very limited animal husbandry um, volunteers that are currently, those individuals, uh, some of those individuals are vaccinated, but our volunteers do not need to be vaccinated. But we do ask that you wear a face covering um, when you're indoors, just like, um, just like we ask our guests. Um, and then, of course, we have a variety of um, training opportunities in which we talk a little bit about how to increase your safety um, while you're out on out on grounds and could be within six feet of, of guests. So um, we are looking at assignments, making sure that um, individuals, whether you're a staff or a volunteer, can get six feet away from the individuals that you're kind of meeting with mm-hmm. um, and looking at ways in which we can help people help themselves to be safe when they're out on grounds. Did y'all think about having folks be required, uh, mandated that folks be vaccinated? Was that, did you have conversations about that? Oh, we've had conversations about everything, of course. Um, You know, it's an ever-changing environment and um, those conversations are ongoing, especially in light of some of the news that has come out recently Mm -hmm. about mandating vaccines. So, but you all at the end of the day felt that, you know, you could probably manage the volunteers and their health and safety if you just did not mandate that they be vaccinated? So we look at it the same way that we look at our staff. And this is an ongoing conversation, of Mm -hmm. course. We are always having this conversation about how we can increase the safety um, for our our team members, of which volunteers are part of it, um, as well as our guests and the um, animals that are in our care. So um, yes, we're continuing to have those conversations and we continue to work hard to create the safest environment for all of those um, individuals and our animals in our care at all times. And again, if someone is interested, Michelle, in being a, a volunteer, um, what should they do? Oh, well, if you want to be a volunteer, we would love to have you. Our new event volunteer. You want um, me to volunteer? Is that what you're saying? Yes, Rose, you should come volunteer. And let me tell you what you get to do when you do. So we have a lot of great opportunities, events throughout the year. Um, this new event volunteer program will really provide opportunity for you to just try out some of the events that we have. Um, but one of the most exciting events that we have coming up this fall is a brand new inaugural Illuminates um, at the zoo, a Chinese lantern festival. So mm. it's going to be, it starts mid November, runs through mid January, and it's 48 nights um, at the zoo with these gorgeous Chinese lanterns will have activities that you can lead with children as well as engage our guests and then learn more about the animals that are being represented by these beautiful works of art. Um, Really stunning Chinese. You have to come, Rose. You will love it. If you're interested or anyone else in your audience is interested, please go to zooatlanta.org and click on the support tab on the left um, and click on volunteers. Fill out the short application and we will get back to you. Um, about how you can be a part of our team. You really want me to volunteer? Rose, of course <laughs> I do. I'd like to of work. Of course I do. I want to work in a reptile house. And we're going to. Oh, we have, I mean, we have amazing. So you're a herp person. That's amazing. Herpetolo- herpetologist. That's what you are, Rose. I've never been called a herpetologist, but I'm glad that you. 
<laughs> cleared it up because some folks listening are like, wait, what? Okay, but no, I'd love to. love to volunteer over there. Uh, Michelle Collar is Vice President of Education at Zoo Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll have a link from our website to your website if folks want to volunteer for Zoo Atlanta and take care of everybody over there. You all stay safe. Thank you, Rose. And you guys have a wonderful day, everyone um, listening as well. Take care. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. There was a study led by the University of Utah and health scientists, and they suggested that more than half of those working on the front line or involved in COVID-19 care could be at risk for one or more mental health problems. We're talking physicians, nurses, emergency responders and other specialists. And the problems that they talked about were acute traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, and also what they cited as problematic alcohol use and insomnia. And this study appeared in the May edition of the Journal of Psychiatric Research. And there was something else, though, that we're not really talking about. There's another group we haven't heard much about in terms of how they're doing, how they're coping during this pandemic. Our medical residents. Well, Dr. Anwar Osborne is the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and in Internal Medicine at Emory School of Medicine. He also serves as the Assistant Program Director for the school's Emergency Medicine Residency Program, and he joins me now. Dr. Osborne, welcome to the program. Good to have you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm honored, and uh, I want to thank you for your tireless work in uh, delivering uh, conversations with uh, community leaders. Well, thank you. It's nothing compared to what you all have been doing all this time, so we need to say thank you. But I want to begin with letting the audience know, what's a typical day like for a medical resident to begin with? What do you think folks don't know? That's true. Um, I would say the best way to describe what a medical resident goes through is almost like a, a school, right? So after you graduate from medical school, you know, you're a doctor, but that's not enough. And so you uh, would enter into a training program. And uh, the training program functions a lot like a school. So we have a principal um, that's called the program director. And then we have assistant principals. And I'm one of those folks. And we deliver on-the-job training uh, in various settings uh, for these uh, fresh graduates from medical school. And so uh, every month they do like a different sort of thing. And uh, I train uh, emergency physicians and um, their shifts uh, at uh, the Emory uh, program that I work at uh, are typically eight hours um, in various parts of the ER. Uh, We have training sites at Grady, Mm -hmm. uh, Emory at main campus and um, Emory at Midtown. Uh, And so they'll show up and see, uh, you know, basically everything that comes in through the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those residents work hard. Uh, You know, it sounds, it sounds bad talking about this outside of the context, but I mean, we have to cap them at 80 hours a week, right? And like, that's considerably more than a lot of professions, right? So, uh, and, uh, you know, believe it or not, like, you know, the residents, um, because there's so much to learn, they, they run right up against that 80 hours uh, many weeks in the year. 80 hours a week. Wow. When you think back to those days for you, what stands out? Um, it stands out that, uh, I was probably a little bit misguided, uh, in that, um, uh, you know, when, when I was a resident, we didn't have these, uh, duty hour rules, right? My first call, uh, was, uh, 36 hours. Um, I was awake the whole time. 
Uh, and I got there at seven in the morning and I left the next day at five o'clock PM. Uh, and I mean, but you know, also I was young. So, I mean, I took a nap and then went out partying later. Uh, you know, that's, that's not really fair, um, to expect other people to do that. I don't know if it was the best way, uh, to take care of patients at the time. No, uh, and- I, I could see someone saying, no, we realized you, you were young, Dr. Osborne, but <laughs> we're glad you grew out of that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's 80 hours is a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, uh, um, I think uh, today, you know, I have to look at, uh, in, in the rest of uh, our team, has to look at treating uh, these residents um, with respect to, like, people aren't supposed to work that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's gotten a lot harder uh, in uh, the times of uh, COVID. And um, That's my next question. Because we are in this extraordinary time, and these residents, this is something that, well, we know no other resident has experienced in, in our lifetime. Overall, how would you say some of them are doing? What are you noticing? Well, um, uh, that's a great question. I think um, the residents or the response is varied, but uh, you know, for our emergency uh, uh, department residents, like there's a lot of purpose and resilience in their day to day, right? So um, when this first started back uh, back in March. You know, our um, our team decided to start meeting like on a daily basis, right? So we, um, me and the the other directors of the program um, met and uh, tried to discuss uh, what's the best way to manage the amount of hours that they have. Uh, and this is in the setting of very fluctuant um, uh, volumes in the emergency department, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you probably know this. Uh, you know, there were times when we stopped doing elective surgeries, and then people were afraid to come to the ER, and so volumes plummeted. And then when the cases spiked, uh, the volumes went up a little bit, but then everybody was sick, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and in the midst of all that, you know, the places that had the rotations where the residents were learning about uh, more elective procedures. Uh, those ones stopped and we had a lot of residents that were in the ER at the same time. So we were able to really cut down the shifts. Uh, and as we checked in with them, uh, what, what we were finding is that, uh, yes, it was, it was hard to work there. Um, yes, they had purpose. Uh, but the way to wellness was not as easy as like work less. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that was probably the biggest thing I learned. And I think that's the biggest thing my team learned. Uh, you know, we there's so maybe in a month they'll do anywhere from 18 to 21 shifts. Uh, and then we cut the shifts down to about uh, 16 or so for most of them. Uh, and that's a pretty light month, uh, maybe four or five days a week. And so, you know, they, they like that. But at the same time, like how how they gained resiliency wasn't always tied to just not working. Like it was tied to being able to hang out with your friends. It was tired and tied to having a drink uh, at a bar after a shift, right? Um, and there's uh, value in the social connection in terms of the resilience of the residents that I uh, was not so much, not so much as altogether oblivious to, but I didn't realize how important that would be until we dropped the work part till it was almost nothing. Well, and while having their own group their own set of friends or whomever to hang out with and it wasn't is key but i imagine too for some who needed some resources uh just Mm -hmm. 
even in needing to talk or seeking resources and how to handle the anxiety, how to handle seeing death so frequently, as you know, that we've I've talked to health professionals right there from Emory who've talked about this. Uh, and these are professionals. And these are doctors and nurses who've been in the business for decades and how they were challenged with this. So what did, what can you what, what are you all offering in terms of resources for the residents? So uh, we have uh, a fairly robust program um, uh, at Emory. Uh, the acronym is, is um, not as material, but the residents have access to counseling and uh, even more intense like uh, PTSD uh, sort of counseling um, with uh, with uh, specialized faculty. Um, I'll tell you that uh, you know when the protests were going on in uh, Atlanta, like last summer, the Black Lives Matter protests, like uh, a lot of the um, fallout from some of those, not to get into specifics, happened, uh, you know, at Grady uh, mm -hmm. and our residents uh, sometimes were part of that. Uh, and we had to be flexible, like some of them, like, you know, probably shouldn't uh, continue the shift. You know, we gave them space to uh, uh, go home, take some time. Right. Um, and then, you know, in the setting of this, like a lot of people's family, got sick. A lot of the residents got sick. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, resources available um, that uh, they use some, I think, uh, their best resource or the resource that they uh, like the most is each other. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as much as I want to be, um, you know, big brother, Dr. O, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they almost always respond better, like, um, you know, amongst themselves. Uh, you know, we do have uh, uh, chief residents, right? Um, and uh, those are like our um, like field generals, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're residents, but, you know, they've been selected as leaders. And so uh, having the right group of people that can reach out and be empathetic with the residents and communicate uh, to uh, the faculty like myself, like what the residents are really feeling is also key. Well, let me ask you this. What's been that balance for you what's what's that been like what's been your resource because you're also you know people are looking to you but then you might need to look to someone else maybe you have your own set of practices that you use that you might feel comfortable letting our audience know how you got or getting through all of this uh i think for me the one thing that i have to uh or had to uh kind of dial into is just being honest right um there was, uh, you know, I don't want to come across as somebody who had it all figured out uh, at the beginning, like times were hard for me too. Uh, and I don't also want to be a uh, complainer, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, if I had to take a, a day off and I did, uh, you know, and it was because my wife was in the ICU with COVID, right? So uh, if anybody asked, that's that's why I didn't show up. Uh, and, you know, I lost uh, um close family members from from COVID. And, you know, I think uh, as a group, there's a lot of value in just being honest with each other and understanding that we're kind of going through this uh, together. Uh, and uh, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm not trying to say I want to isolate, but then, you know, amongst myself and the residents and the other faculty, we get to see like all of the stuff that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And you step outside of this world and, um, you know, you go on your social media stuff or you talk to your family and they're like, oh, COVID's not that bad. Like, it's bad. Like, I was looking at it the whole time, you know, like I pronounce people, you know, the residents are uh, uh, struggling to make it through. So um, there is a sort of shared experience um, that I've uh, tapped into also. 
Dr. Osborne, you, when you have to share that grim news to family members, loved ones, and your residents, I don't know if your residents are with you, but how do you, how do you all, I don't know if educate's the right word, but how do you all prepare them for having to do that, to deliver uh, that, that news? Uh, uh, that's a good question. You know, fortunately, like we uh, have um, like uh, one of the, I don't know what the uh, analog for forefathers is, foremothers of um, palliative care and uh, grief counseling work in the emergency department as part of our faculty, right? So, um, you know, nationally, like the residents that we have get some of the best training possible for uh, grief disclosure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they, we spend uh, time both in uh, simulation uh, and uh, more formal lecture didactics in training them how to uh, deliver this news. Uh, now, we have had to be flexible. Um, there's times when like, we have to deliver news like that when um, people aren't uh, in the building, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, a whole team of, uh, uh, of social workers and chaplains that kind of help us navigate, like, when and how is the best time to uh, uh, work on that aspect of uh, patient care. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, really, it requires like a, a whole group approach. Um, that includes, uh, you know, the chaplains, nurses, uh, and uh, social work to, to put us in a position where we could uh, treat the family with the most dignity possible. And finally, Dr. Osborne, I want to get this question in. Are you able to recognize when a resident might be at that breaking point? And perhaps they may not be, you know, telling you that information, or but you, you just recognize that those signs. You were able to then intervene? Um, I would like to think so. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, also like to think that um, we empower the other residents, particularly our, our uh, chief residents, uh, to be on the lookout and uh, help us to find those people. Because as, as good as I might think I am at uh, finding uh, a troubled resident, um, I'm not smarter than the collective of the leadership team around me. And that is part of my conversation with Dr. Anwar Osborne. He's Assistant Program Director of the school's Emergency Medicine Residency Program. A good conversation there. I got a lot of good feedback from you all about that conversation. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.